Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 409, Will This Day Never End? For the last two episodes, we have covered the earlier events of August 12th, the multi-layered attacks coming from the Italians and Germans against Pedestal. The Italians had tried a few clever tricks, but they came up short. The U-boats tried their luck, but were mostly chased away. But as big as the early morning and then early afternoon attacks had been, the biggest of them all was about to take place. Because August 12th was supposed to be, from Rome's point of view, Pedestal's last day. But it would be inaccurate to say that the Axis powers planned a third big attack on that day. No, they, mostly the Italians, were about to pull out all the stops. This was to be the attack that either saw few merchantmen left to be destroyed on the morrow, that's a different story, or at the very least, the Italians were hoping to smash Force X, led by Admiral Burrow, the close escort force that was to go all the way to Malta, so that the remaining merchantmen could be finished off the next day. After all, Pedestal was by now only some 330 miles from Malta, and yet... Like the first attack of this day, the Italians messed up their own, it has to be said, brilliant plan. The idea was to simply overwhelm the collective defensive capabilities of Pedestal's escorts. There were to be 22 torpedo bombers with heavy escort, 14 dive bombers with heavy escort, and 40 high-level bombers also with heavy escort, all hitting the convoy at the same time. The AA guns on the destroyers and other surface ships wouldn't know which way to point. But it was the Italians themselves who began to deconstruct and thus water down their own attack plan. And in fairness, it had to be an air attack, as the British Royal Navy had ordered eight of their submarines to patrol the water just ahead of the convoy, that being just south of Pantelleria. The sight of those subs and they had been ordered to show themselves, helped keep Mussolini's navy away, or so Admiral Seifert thought. First, the escorting fighters that were to cover the dive and high-level bombers had already done escort duty that day during the second series of attacks. Thus, those planes and pilots needed a rest. So it was decided that the escorts for both groups of bombers would be cancelled as were the high-level bombers themselves. After all, it was seen as the least impactful attack. As for the dive bombers, well, that was affected as well. 102 Gruppo was the only Italian dive bomber force in the area. They had German Junkers Ju-87s, the infamous Stuka. They had been trained by German pilots who had either used these planes or ones like them to win in the Low Countries. Greece, and the early phase of Barbarossa. However, the commander of 102 Gruppo was not impressed with the number of escorts his was to receive, so he cut back on the attacking number to nine planes. So, so far, the high-level bombers have been cancelled, and the dive bombers, a quality group of highly trained pilots, was reduced, and some escorts were told to stand down. But the sad tale does not end there. As for the Italian part of this coming attack, that leaves the 22 torpedo bombers, 
but now that number was cut to 16, as some of the planes had difficulty attaching the torpedo. What was to have been an Italian roar was reduced, through poor preparation, to a whimper. Hopefully, the Germans would be able to compensate. The first German wave, which was to hit at the same time as the Italians, was made up of 20 Stukas, escorted by a large formation of BF-109s and 110s. And it would be these planes that the British carriers were sent to fight against. And by 6 p.m., the air battle was at its height as sea hurricanes of Victorious's 885 Squadron engaged the incoming Italian torpedo bombers. Lieutenant B. Patterson of 885 Squadron came upon four torpedo bombers, but noticed that one of them had fallen a little behind. Going in, he lit up that plane's starboard engine with his tracers. Soon, the SM-79 was heading down. But during all this, the other three Italian planes fired on Patterson. His plane was now damaged, so he had to disengage. But sending one of theirs to the sea while you were only damaged, that's how you win a war. But it was Sub-Lieutenant A.J. Thompson that would win the award for most effective use of his bullets. Also from 885 Squadron, Thompson found four Stukas flying alone, obviously hoping to sneak in from a different direction. So, as he was about 2,000 feet higher than them, he dove down and got behind them. Picking one of the planes, he gave it six seconds worth of bullets. Smoke came out of the engine, and she went down. Then Thompson simply flew behind the other planes. A few seconds later, they got the message, dropped their bombs over the waves, and turned for home. But now Thompson was about to pay the price. Seven or eight BF-109s now came at him, and so Thompson now had to dive away. But these yellow-tipped aggressors stayed right with him, rising, turning, diving. Thompson managed to get in behind one of them during all this and splashed it, but the others were closing in. Fortunately, other sea hurricanes arrived and saved Thompson's tail, for which he thanked them. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Still, there were simply too many escorting fighters around the main bomber groups for them to be kept away. At 6.35 p.m., the bombers got through. The defenders spotted the torpedo bombers first and lit into them. They had split into at least two attacking groups, and the torpedo bombers coming at the starboard side got there first, but also got the attention of all those AA guns waiting. Many of the pilots coming in panicked, dropped their torpedoes while at least 3,000 yards away. Others came in closer, but in the end, none of their fish made contact. As for the nine planes of 102 Gruppo, the sole Italian dive bomber force in the area, they took off and formed up, readying to go in. But at that moment, they themselves were set upon by sea hurricanes. Two JU-87s were lost before their escorts could chase the British planes away. The remaining dive bombers broke into two groups and attacked the convoy. One eyewitness would say that each group was led by a captain, and one captain had oil all over his windscreen, so he had to stick his head out of the cockpit to aim. Next, one attacking plane had an AA shell pass through one of its propellers. It did not explode, but simply made a hole in the wooden structure. One Stuga turned at the last second to go after the battleship Rodney, but the ship's captain ordered starboard full rudder, and the bomb missed by 20 yards off the port side. But just as soon as this death-defying move was over, another group of torpedo bombers came in from the starboard side. Yet the AA fire was such that the bombers again dropped from too far away, or did not drop at all, but simply flew across the convoy to the port side. Two Stukas were lost during this attack. One Stuka was shot down by a sea hurricane, the other by one of the ship's AA guns. And the Italian losses were not over yet. Lieutenant B. Ritchie from 800 Squadron had just lifted off from the Victorious when he spotted a Stuka just finishing its attack. It was currently flying at 400 feet, so Ritchie chased it for a while, but eventually got to within 100 yards of it and let loose. The rear gunner was hit, the plane began to smoke, and went down for the last time. Just then, another Italian formation came in and launched 12 torpedoes and made some impressive claims. The problem is, the British war records from those ships do not back these up. No merchantmen were hit during this attack, but that does not mean the Italians went home empty-handed. Just outside this chaotic air attack, the destroyer Foresight was hit by a torpedo on its starboard side. Lieutenant Commander R.A. Fell radioed this in, but the Foresight had done its job. What Lieutenant Commander Fell could not know was that the back of the Foresight had been broken. She was a lost ship. It was only a matter of time. Fortunately, the destroyer Tartar was dispatched to help the Foresight, a request was made to Vice Admiral Burrow of allowing a second destroyer, Penn, to stay with the Tartar, but Burrow's reply was, Sorry, the convoy needs her more. Just as the convoy finished evading those 12 Italian torpedoes and the foresight started to smoke, 12 German Ju-87s came in from the sun, from about 10,000 feet. Each plane perfectly peeled off and dove, 
every two seconds until the formation was screaming down at the carrier indomitable. Some of the German planes would not release their 1,000-pound bomb until they were less than 1,000 feet from the target. One witness on the carrier would later write, The carrier looks as if it had disturbed a hive of bees. The dive bombers were zooming down on her, and her own fighters, desperately protecting their home, were following the enemy planes right into the carrier's gunfire. Earlier in the war, the Stuka's sirens had terrified so many people across Europe as the Junkers dove down, but now those devices had been removed to save weight. Still, there was something even more eerie about the planes diving down one after the other, all in a deadly quiet. To be sure, all of the Indomitable's guns were blazing away, but there should have been more help. Just behind the carrier, the cruiser Phoebe should have been adding her guns to stopping those dive bombers from coming down. Yet the Phoebe's guns were aimed at some Italian medium bombers coming right at them from behind. At least a part of the Italian's multi-prong attack was working. Soon the carrier was hidden behind water spouts and smoke coming from both ends of the ship. Right away, the Indomitable was turned so the wind could help combat the flames. The first bomb to strike true landed near the forward lift and pierced the upper galley deck, exploding just above the main hangar deck. Suddenly, there was a 20 by 12 foot hole in the upper deck. Also, a fire had broken out in the hangar, and this quickly spread to the ammunition of two of the 4.5-inch guns. The second bomb that made contact landed just behind the aft lift, and like the first bomb, it went through the upper galley deck and exploded just above the upper hangar deck. Another giant hole was created. Another fire was started. Around this point, the bridge broadcast microphone was accidentally switched on, and it stayed that way. The crew could hear Rear Admiral Boyd say, Christ, Dennis, I believe they buggered us. Besides these two hits, there were three near misses that also caused damage in their own right. In summation, the forward lift was unusable, and the aft lifts were out of commission, for now. In other words, indomitable as an offensive weapon was out of the fight. If anything, she was now a liability. Even worse, the carrier's team had suffered deaths, six officers and 44 ratings, with another 59 seriously wounded, all from a dive attack that was over in seconds. An officer on the cruiser Phoebe, who witnessed all this, later wrote, I thought she would roll over, like the carrier Eagle, and indeed, the Indomitable's fate seemed to be that of Eagle. For 20 minutes after the attack, the carrier, like so many other damaged ships had done before, began a wide, slow circle as she was unresponsive to the crew. But later, an Aldous lamp was put on the bridge and blinked out the message, Situation in Hand. With such damage, the Indomitable turned around and headed west. Very few who watched her truly believed that she would make it back home. But she did. Soon she would be on her way to the U.S. for repairs, and it would not be the last time this was needed. 
but that was in the future. Admiral Seifert did not hesitate to order the Charybdis and the destroyers, Lookout, Lightning, and Somalia, to stand by to assist. But it was the Lookout that stayed the closest to help put out the fires. This the Lookout did from 7.14 to 7.30 p.m. Soon after, Captain Trowbridge of the Indomitable radioed Seifert and reported, We can do 17 knots. In another hour, the max speed would be 28. Clearly, miracle workers were on board. It didn't hurt that the carrier and the lookout were able to pump some 760 tons of seawater out of Indomitable's bowels. During all this, from 6.50 to 7.30 p.m., the remaining carrier, Victorious, landed her and Indomitable's planes that had been airborne during this latest air attack. However, one martlet ran out of fuel while waiting to land, so had to be ditched in the Mediterranean. Fortunately, their destroyer Zetlin rescued the pilot. Not surprisingly, the deck of the Victorious was now overcrowded. All damaged planes were pushed overboard. But here's where this latest air attack affected the merchantmen. As they had been approaching the Narrows, Force Z, Seifert's capital warships, would turn around. And before this air attack, the plan had been to have one carrier send off a four-plane squad to keep a general eye out, while the other carrier launched its four planes to fly over Admiral Burrow's Force X and the merchantmen. Now, that was not possible. The merchantmen would have no air umbrella. As the sun began to set, Seifert and Burrow consoled themselves that, as bad as the day had been, the merchantmen, the very reason for this convoy, were still safe. So the access had failed, but the journey wasn't over just yet. As the last Axis air fighter disappeared from the radar screen, Admiral Seifert ordered those who would be turning around to prepare. Pedestal was now just under 300 miles from Malta. By 7 p.m., their turn was complete, and Force X and Force Z began to pull away from each other. For a reference point, the turning point was due north of Tunis. Vice Admiral Seifert signed off with... Godspeed. Next, Seifert radioed the crippled Indomitable. You set the pace, but do buck up. They were all heading back to the rock, especially the wounded. The battleship Nelson, boiler problems, the ethereal battle damage like that of Indomitable. However, Seifert then decided that some of the warships, the Nelson, Victorious, some cruisers and destroyers, would remain in place for the night just in case there was something they could do to help Force X, that is, Burrow and company, the next day, as word had reached them that Admiral Dazara's heavy ships were planning to make an appearance the next day, August 13th. Admiral Burrow knew that he was going to officially hear Seifert say today that Pedestal was splitting up, but he was expecting that to happen 20 minutes later than it did. Every second the larger ships were with the convoy, everyone felt better. But here was Seifert changing the schedule. Still, he had his reasons. The first was that, given the might of this latest air attack that day, the Admiral seriously doubted that the Italians had anything else to throw at pedestal. 
Secondly, the damage to Indomitable was incredible. She needed to be escorted out of the Mediterranean ASAP. As for Burroughs Force X, he knew what was awaiting him, now that the battleships had left, thanks to reports from RAF pilots having spotted a part of Admiral Dazara's formation. As things now stood, Dazara was coming at Force X and the merchantmen with three heavy cruisers, three light cruisers, and eleven destroyers, and the two sides were expecting to come together early on the morning of August 13th, about 60 miles southwest of Sicily, just off Pantelleria. The crewmen on their way back to Gibraltar were relieved to still be alive and heading away from danger, but at the same time, they felt guilty over leaving their comrades being that much less protected. But this had come from the first Sea Lord, Deadly Pound, and it was a smart move. You can risk a merchantman on a convoy, but you cannot risk the Mediterranean fleet on a convoy. The brass always has to believe there will be a tomorrow. Back to the lone carrier, Victorious, it took some doing, but at 6.20 she managed to get four Fulmars to lift off. She had lift problems as well. They patrolled over Burroughs Force X, and it's a good thing that they did, for soon they were mixing it up with the last of the Axis planes. The German pilots would leave soon enough, but not before each side lost one plane and one pilot. Admiral Seifert had guessed, hoped rather, that the day's fighting was over. He was wrong. As distance grew between forces Z and X, 35 Junkers and Heinkels were taking off from a Sicilian runway, readying to take on the reduced pedestal. Further, at least six Italian submarines and entire flotillas of E-boats were moving into position. August 12th wasn't over, nor was the convoy's chance of being completely destroyed. Postscript a few things to mention, in no particular order. That day of August 12th saw pilot Dickie Cork, all of 25 years old, become an ace. He had taken off from the Indomitable, and the way things worked out, his hurricane was the only one that had a 20-millimeter cannon. His first kill was at 1239, when he shot down a Savoia Machete bomber. Then, when he was near the coast of Tunisia, he downed a Ju-88, and then assisted in downing another. Later that day, he mixed up with, but won, against a BF-110, and then he took down another Savoia bomber. There's something you don't see every day, but it speaks to the intensity and numbers involved. There were still 47 planes on Indomitable, and all were now practically useless, until they could be retrieved from the hangars below. Still, it was obvious that the fleet air arm had done good work this day. It was also obvious that more modern, faster planes were needed for the British carriers, and more of them, please. For on that day, August 12th, when the Victorious had struggled to put up 22 planes, all kinds, the Axis had at least 200 planes involved in that day's actions. And now Pedestal, which had started out with technically five carriers, was down to one. One had been sunk, another severely damaged, 
and now the victorious was a sitting duck, if not protected by those around her. The last two had left the area as they were only responsible for transferring fighter planes. And though this did not change anytime soon, the Allied pilots' claims of the number of enemy pilots they shot down was far beyond reality. That day, the Allied pilots claimed 39 downed enemy aircraft. The real number was closer to 18. Still, respectable. But Rear Admiral Arthur Leister would write of this day, It is a great disappointment to me that the fighters did not take a greater toll of the enemy. And it has to be said that before the Indomitable was smashed, she had launched 74 fighter sorties, which had just set a new record. That's how hard the hangar and flight deck crews had been working. And it had taken something like the Stuka dive bombing to wound the carrier so, for the British had yet to come up with an answer to an almost vertical attack path. But they had better soon. The British Empire started the war with only seven carriers. And lastly, let's finish off the HMS Foresight. No pun intended. Remember, she had been struck by a torpedo, or eel, as the Italians called them, from a Savoia Machetti SM-79 bomber at 6.45 p.m. Her back was broken, her steering gone, and four people on board had died. The HMS Tartar arrived and secured a tow line by 7.30 p.m. Then this wire got caught up in the Tartar's starboard propeller, and another line had to be retied. Then a few unknown ships were spotted, and the Tartar had to free herself to be ready to react. That danger was soon over, and the two ships were once again tied to each other. The next morning, an enemy sub was spotted. The two ships were untangled, and the Tartar dropped a few depth charges. Then several Axis aircraft were spotted shadowing the two British vessels. That was it. The captain of the Tartar freed his ship for the last time and made the executive decision to scuttle the foresight. Because those German planes, they were just waiting for the right moment to come in and sink them both. No, it was not worth it. After he offloaded the Foresight's 181 crew to his ship, the Foresight went under for the last time at 9.55 a.m., August 13, 1942. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, still getting caught up on thanking people. So, here's my next batch. Let's see here. The latest members, uh, Daniel Slakes from Rochester, New York. William Monstead from Nolens, Louisiana. I've been to the World War II Museum there. It's phenomenal. Um, let's see here. Stephen Milburn from Janali, New South Wales, Australia. Sorry, Stephen, if I butchered that. Uh, Doug Judd from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And he will be making a return. Peter Ivanthoven, Westchester, Pennsylvania. Sorry, Peter, if I got that wrong. Michael Fisher from Bedford, Pennsylvania. And Lynette Fanguy from Austin, Texas. Uh, as far as those who have made donations, let's see, David Weissman. Thank you, David, very much. David Weissman, if I said that wrong, I apologize. My one semester of German kicked in, and I apologize. Uh, Bonnie Layton. 
Thank you very much, milady. Um, and this next one, it didn't give a name. It's from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, they had written a message saying that they had recently discovered the podcast. They travel a lot. The only clue I have is STL Seller. So whoever you are, thank you very much for the donation. And Kristen Pohl made a donation. Uh, I would like to do a couple of mentions. Again, Doug Judd from Canada. He's listened twice to all of the episodes. Doug why would you do that to yourself? My wife doesn't like listening to me for the few hours in between work and bed, but you're appreciated and loved here. Thank you. Uh, Sam Wood wrote to me after listening to the 100th episode and had a nice message. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, so I will see you next week with the uh, August the 13th. Uh, first, we have to finish off August the 12th. Uh, then we go to the August 13th and they're going through the Narrows and it's about to speed up and yet get a lot more intense. We're going to be bringing in the Ohio and some other ships as well that are going to do some amazing things along with their crews. So pedestal is near the end, and yet at the same time, it is far from over. Oh, one last thing I forgot. Some of you have probably seen this, but I think many of you have not. Um, last month, I think it was, or was it the month before that? I can't remember. I drove to Texas and I did several shows with a gentleman, Daniel Milliken. He has his own uh, YouTube channel. It's called Taking Off. You can search YouTube, Taking Off, YouTube, Dan Milliken. Uh, the name of the episode that we did together was I Found the Worst and Best World War II Pilot. So we did four shows together, but only for right now, only with the, one of them is out that he's edited and whatever he needed to do to make me look good. I'm sure that took a lot of lighting. But anyway, even though it's not on my feed because it's his property, if you go to YouTube and search Taking Off or Dan Milliken or Dan Milliken and Ray Harris, whatever, you'll probably find it. But we talked about two of the pilots who helped in Malta. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure you knew you were aware and you can enjoy that if you wanted to, to put a face with the voice. Thank you. Take care, everyone.